Another big crypto robbery, a potentially <clears throat> widespread 3D printing bug, and how a run-of-the-mill gaming mouse can grant you Windows superpowers. All that and more, it's the Naked Security Podcast. Naked Security Podcast. I'm Doug. That's Paul. It's good to be back. And if you missed last week's podcast, don't bother with the last few minutes unless you want to hear Paul and Chester rip my heart out. I think that's why quite a lot of people did listen to it, Doug. I almost feel guilty now hearing you put it that way. I just don't get it. The exact quote was, I just clicked the button and I got a PlayStation 5. Like, that does not happen. That never happens. That has not happened to anyone. I don't Like, I don't get it. It's just... Chester's blind luck, is it? I see that button all the time. I've clicked that button. That button is on so many different sites on the internet. I know the button. I've been clicking that button. I've never gotten the... Anyway. So I don't think he actually did it to spite no. you personally. No. He just figured, how hard can it be? And apparently, it's trivial. Yeah. <laughs> so fun. So fun. It was so fun listening to that. Yes. Um, as you know, we like to uh, we like to start these shows with a fun fact, and my fun fact for you today is that thanks to high elevation and dry cabin air, our taste buds can lose up to thirty percent of their effectiveness while we're on airplanes. So it's not that airplane food actually tastes bad, Paul. It's our own fault. I suspect for many people, there also may be the case that, although it's less and less true on budget airlines these days, that the free booze may have something to do with it. Mm-hmm. That if you've had six mini bottles of a very inexpensive wine before you eat anything, it's all going to taste of inexpensive wine. Mm -hmm. And heartburn. I'm not saying it's a bad thing. I'm just saying to top up a bit. Splendid. Well, speaking of topping up, we have another crypto robbery, this time in Japan, and this time for $100 million. What, and um, I'm guessing this time they did not give the money back like they did with the Poly Networks uh, incident that we talked about last week. So I haven't heard any suggestion that it's coming back, and it didn't sound like one of those things where there was some kind of procedural bug in the smart contract system that allowed someone to create a whole load of fraudulent transactions and drain stuff. It sounded to me more like the... 2021 equivalent of blowing the doors off the vault <laughs> and running off with all the yes, gold bars. this was an actual robbery. Because, of course, as, as a commenter on Naked Security and as various other people have suggested, for all we know, in the, in the Poly Networks case, where Mr. White Hat decided to give the money back, maybe that was not his intention up front. Maybe it just suddenly seemed like a good idea to uh, get out of a hole that he found himself mm -hmm. in, for all we know. We shall never tell, because if you read through all the messages that he sent, the messages he embedded, all in capital letters, as uh, input data in the Ethereum transactions, it's quite a mystifying series of posts. They're quite long and peculiar, shall we say, mm -hmm. about uh, how great a favour he did to everybody. But in this case, the Japanese company, which is... Uh, ironically called liquid it looks like someone came in with dollar zero and went out with dollar everything and they are saying on the site that um 
this, this would be a good time to explain the difference between warm wallets and cold wallets, that they're moving the funds, the company, the, the company liquid is moving the funds out of warm wallets into the cold wallets, which are, um, the warm wallets are connected to the internet so you can trade and uh, give and receive, and the cold wallet is not connected to the internet and is more secure, but you need to uh, move money from a cold wallet into a warm wallet in order to do anything really useful with it. So they're moving things into cold storage so that they can't be accessed by outside hackers. Yes, of course, that's not the same as you keeping your own crypto coins in your own cold wallet, mm -hmm. which is what we recommended in last week's podcast. You know, your, the idea of your own cold wallet, not only is it offline it's not even on your laptop it's for example on a usb stick that's locked away in a safe mm -hmm. or kept in a cupboard so if malware gets onto your computer it can go after everything on your computer but it can't reach out and open the drawer and plug in the usb stick and it's encrypted with a password that you and only you know the idea of the cold wallet for your own use is you're keeping it offline and encrypted anyway but it's a good idea. It means they're not leaving all of their stuff online. And as Chester said last week in the Poly Networks case, my goodness, did they really need to have 600 millions worth of crypto coins liquid live online right now when you're using a comparatively new smart contract scheme that could and did have a bug in it? Did they need to have basically everything in the little paper bag <laughs> sitting on the tabletop yeah uh, maybe you could say something similar with liquid do they really need all that money instantly tradable online or would it be better to have a significant proportion of it perhaps minutes away from being online with some human intervention required as we said last week when chester was on and i think as you and i have said before if you're getting into cryptocurrency don't invest more than you can afford to lose completely. Like not just that your investment may go down, that it may end up being worth dollar zero. And don't put all your stuff into a live online trading where a bug or a security breach might mean that somebody else can trivially trade it all for you. Uh, it's also interesting what you say in this article, um, which a lot of people don't know, and these these people just assume that oh, this was stolen by someone and they ran off with it and they have all this money now. But it's possible to sometimes track these wallets that the money is siphoned into and then block list these wallets from other sites that they could use to spend the money or convert the money. So it's possible that these crooks might be sitting on a pile of unusable cryptocurrency. But yes. as you point out, it's like that doesn't the, get it back no the crooks it's like them running away <laughs> with your cash nobody's and got it lighting it on fire yeah so it's it's very very cold comfort you might get a little bit of relief thinking well the crooks are going to be really steamed about this but it doesn't help you and of course depending on how that particular cryptocurrency works that can also be quite bad for the cryptocurrency for example bitcoin has a hard limit on the maximum number of bitcoins that can ever be created a sort of deflationary thing that every four years the number of bitcoins that get issued for every transaction that's processed will halve and so eventually i think the total is just over 20 million that's the maximum number of bitcoins that can ever exist that was by design 
so when significant quantities of bitcoins get locked up in a wallet that can either never be spent because someone's going to prison for two times 10 to the eight years if they try and spend it or because somebody's lost their private key and they can't actually use the wallet anymore or they've died and they forgot to make provisions in their will for how private key could be recovered those funds are eternally unspendable yep so there is a problem when when stuff drops out of circulation like this in large amounts that you know one wonders what the final effect might be on the cryptocurrency ecosystem and there are even people who suggest that perhaps some of those who are pulling off some of these heists are quite happy with that if it's a currency like bitcoin that their goal is not actually to get the however many million dollars they stole but to remove it from circulation permanently and irrevocably it is also possible lest you think that is uh totally traceable it is possible to launder bitcoin too so if they're sophisticated enough to get away with this they may be sophisticated enough to launder it but but you still have the problem that if you have one wallet with this giant sum of funds in yeah and you try and transfer something out of it then there's a question of whether that transaction is ever going to be approved and also yeah. in the future given that each bitcoin transaction essentially stands alone unlike what happens with cryptocurrencies like monero where everything gets mixed together a little bit to make it the sort of traceability a little bit harder there's always the chance that you might show up in a pattern somewhere mm -hmm. so pseudo anonymous is the best way to describe them yeah loosely speaking it seems that lots of crooks do know how to get away with it but for everyone else it's not significantly more anonymous than regular bank transactions particularly if you want to cash out in the end because then you have to go through an exchange that converts cryptocurrency into real money and that process is regulated and in most countries these days follows a know your customer rule which means they have to check your id first basically all right very good that is japanese crypto coin exchange robbed of 100 million dollars on nakedsecurity.sophos.com uh, let's talk about this uh, 3D printing bug. This is the story Ooh, of a yes. load balancer gone awry and spaghetti and all <laughs> sorts of fun things. Yes, it didn't go awry by tipping over, which is the problem you might expect with load balancers. But yes, it's a, it's a fun project. It's an open source tool that you can use called TSD, The Spaghetti Detective. And if you've ever done or into 3D printing, you'll know that the home sort, which works with molten plastic, basically, where a 2D plotter uses ink and leaves the ink behind on the paper, a 3D plotter has a print head that moves in three dimensions and it leaves behind a track of molten goo that it emits <laughs> through a heated print head. Yep. Now, a plotter, the ink, if the pen's on the paper, the ink stays on the paper. It can't go anywhere else afterwards. But where does that gloop go? And the idea is it has to be emitted within a tiny amount say the thickness of the filament of part of the model that's already there and has already solidified and the very start of the model basically has to be uh has to solidify onto the base the platter at the bottom of the printer you can't print in any order <laughs> like you can with a 2d plotter oh, i'll print the northwest corner of a map then i'll go down and print the southeast corner on 3d plotting it all printing at least it all has to be joined together 
because the blob of filament you're ejecting now has to glom onto something that's already there and is already solid enough. If that goes wrong, and there are many ways it can, for example, if you haven't designed your model well and it's very tall and thin, it can overbalance because it mm -hmm. gets you haven't you, you you're not printing it evenly on each side, or the heater could go wrong. <laughs> you could get a temporary blockage, which gives you a tiny little hole, or part of the model could collapse. Well, once you've got one bit of gloop that hasn't glommed onto something that's already there, then it's just basically... It's over. I suppose plastic rain, right? Except yeah. it's not a raindrop. It's like a rain dental floss. <laughs> and so you get what I believe is called a spaghetti monster. Mm -hmm. Basically, half your model looks fine, and then the rest of your spool of filament, and this could take... This could be hours and hours of plotting. Is just a great big... It looks like very fine noodles gone horribly and disappointingly wrong. And that filament's not... Well, it's not... I was going to say it's not cheap, but it's not... It's, it's a waste. It's like... It's, imagine if you had a regular printer that was just spitting out ink all over the place. Uh, there's also the more significant problem, perhaps, for a 3D printer is that when things aren't going well, there are risks, I believe, that the printhead could overheat and get damaged. Mm -hmm. Yep. Uh, and the filament's coming out hot. And if it's not sticking to a model in, a, in the controlled space, you know, there is a, a small but non-trivial fire hazard with unattended printing. And yet, printing jobs can take hours or well overnight. Enter the spaghetti detective. Yes. Which is <laughs> software that you, you hook up a webcam and point it at your 3D printer, get the lighting and the angle right, and then it uses various machine learning techniques to look for parts of the image that do not look like a solid lump of plastic, but that basically <laughs> look like tangled spaghetti. So smart. And if it finds enough of those, beep, it gives you a warning. And you can get up and you can go rushing down into your basement or up into your attic and see whether your plot's gone wrong. Because, of course, then you have to start over anyway. Mm -hmm. So you might like to know that. And can even intervene automatically. So this service is apparently quite popular. With mm -hmm. uh, We had a commenter on Naked Security saying, yeah, I love this. It saved my bacon, mm -hmm. his words, you know, with plots that were quickly determined that I had not got them right. And I would have come down to a great sea of inedible noodles mm -hmm. uh, and a giant mess so yeah it's just a camera pointing at your 3d printing what could possibly go wrong well normally with webcams you think the problem is that there's going to be some cybersecurity blunder that means that anyone can watch the webcam and therefore spy on your kids or watch you while you're in your kitchen in this case the bug was of a rather different sort and sadly this bug now it's fixed revealed that there was a design flaw that the creator of this project now needs to go and fix as well. Basically, the way he was deciding whether the device that you're using to monitor the, the your printer and the printer are on the same network, in other words, should you be allowed to issue a command via the cloud to go and spy on the model, he was doing that, loosely speaking, by testing to see whether he thought the two devices were on the same network. And he was doing that by just saying, do they have the same IP number? And that's a really, really crude and inappropriate way of doing it. But it happens, at least for most home users, that it just works because most home users have a small business home office router 
and those routers do a thing called NAT, which tricks the internet into thinking all the computers on your private network have the same IP number on the internet, and that's done to save IP numbers because mm -hmm. there aren't enough to go around. The problem is that A, you can have two computers on completely different networks that happen to have the same IP number just because they've got some shared infrastructure somewhere where somebody is doing this network address translation. You can have two computers on the same network that have different IP numbers. Maybe it's an older network that has plenty of IP numbers at its disposal. But worst of all, as he said, the bug that he did is he's feeding all the inbound traffic to his servers through a load balancer and he accidentally told his back-end server that every single person in the world had an IP number that was his load balancer. <laughs> Basically, he got his load balancer to do another level of network address translation. So all of his customers suddenly, for an eight-hour period, magically on the same network, so anyone who realized that the bug existed could basically pretend that their mobile phone or whatever that they're using to control the device was on the same network as anybody else's printer and auto discover would work sadly it seems someone woke up to find find somebody had printed something that he did not expect on his printer not what you think they didn't print a crude or rude object yeah it was they nice actually printed they printed a little note a 3d embossed polymer note <laughs> it says tsd is not secure i randomly connected sorry had to inform you the letter u yes there you go so apparently that was the bug great thing is it was only there for eight hours only 73 people apparently got affected and he fixed it promptly and then he did a mea culpa explanation that had many of his customers including one on naked security spoke very highly of the whole process he actually told them exactly what happened and at no point in the email did he say, we take your security seriously, <laughs> or you do not need to worry. It wasn't as though your credit card details got hacked. No. And he also didn't go, I don't know why everyone's complaining. It was only eight hours. It was only 73 people. In mm -hmm. fact, he made the opposite point. He said it was 73 people. Fortunately, it's not many, but one's too many. So I still feel bad about it. The problem, of course, is that now he's fixed it. He still has a system that relies on checking do these two devices have the same IP number as a way of sort of authenticating it, them against one another. Mm -hmm. And if you're a programmer, that just isn't good enough. <laughs> Which is ironic because he says he's not a programmer. He says he's a hacker. And he's, uh, he, Yes, he's... he said he used to be a coder. He found it too stifling. And now he's <laughs> loosened up a bit. Mm -hmm. And the good news is he also said, look, I've, I've listened to the criticism that people gave me even when I'd come clean saying look you have to fix this so I'm going to work on that so the ball's in his court now to get this fixed but so far it seems like although this was a bad thing and his original design was very poor what he's done could have been an excellent model for many companies that have suffered data breaches in the past and let's hope it turns into a model for people who suffer data breaches in the future. He was at least clear, open and honest and didn't try and make up reasons why, well, it wasn't that bad. I don't know what you're fussing about, really. That article is called What's That on my 3D printer? Cloudbug lets anyone print to everyone. It's a great title, by the way. Let us now 
deftly slip into this week in tech history. This week in tech history, 26 years ago, the world was officially able to purchase a little operating system known as Windows 95. The year was, well, it was 1995. And as a successor to Windows 3.1, Windows 95 featured a new and improved graphical user interface, plug-and-play hardware features, which sometimes worked, and the ability to leverage a 32-bit preemptive multitasking architecture. Oh, and it came with MS-DOS, just in case DOS was included instead of being sold separately as it had been in the past. Paul, where were you when Windows 95 came out? I was selling computers at Best Buy. It was a big day. I was in the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, and I was working for Sophos. Huh. It was kind of interesting from a cybersecurity point of view. And was that the first major software product that was released with a rock and roll song? Oh, it may have been. Because that was Start that. Me Up, wasn't it? Yes, By, it was. Uh, the, the Rolling Stones. Stones. The Start Button. Yes. Yeah. Which is still with us today. It doesn't say Start on it anymore. I'm just checking mine right now. If I hover, it says Start. That's not the same thing. Got to hover over the, the icon. I wonder if I can make this bigger. All right, I'll play with that later. Okay, now we're going to move on to uh, my favorite story of the bunch today. This is, uh, if you're frustrated that you're not able to install games on your work computer or some sort of computer you're not an admin on, you need only to purchase a gaming mouse first, in a delightful twist of irony. So what's going on here, Paul? This story, Doug, involves Razer mice and keyboards. Many of our listeners will have heard of Razer. They're pretty well known in the gaming scene. Apparently, the same problem exists with some similar software for other products of this sort. So I'm not just blaming Razer here. And it's kind of more of a snafu than a giant security-eating vulnerability. But it is a peculiar irony. And it goes around the fact that if you've used Windows for any length of time, you will know that in the early days, it was driver hell, wasn't it, Doug? It was. You'd get a new device, you'd come home, you'd plug it in, it doesn't have a driver, insert the CD you got with the, with the device, well, there wasn't one, or it doesn't work, or you've got the wrong one, or you've bought the device from somebody else secondhand, you don't have the driver. And so you end up on the internet, going around, trying to find a driver, Goodness knows whether you're going to end up on the vendor's site or a site that just happens to collect drivers because that's useful or the site of someone who collects drivers and makes a big noise about them because that's their vehicle for distributing viruses of malware. So, so it was called it was called plug and play, but there was a lot there was a lot going on between plugging and playing. Yes, it was plug and play eventually. Once you'd built the edifice, <laughs> once you built the playhouse, as it were. Yeah. And so going and finding those drivers and then, you know, what if a vendor got bought and what if the vendor had 17 sites and how did you know oh, which was the right one? God, yeah. So these days, it sounds a lot more dodgy. You plug in the device. It has to announce itself to Windows. Windows looks at who's the vendor, what product is it, what features does it need? Do I already have a driver, particularly a built-in generic driver, that supports this device just fine? My golly, I do. I don't need to do anything. And that's why most of the time, when you plug in a regular keyboard, 
even if it's one with a slightly different keyboard layout or a few extra keys, or you, you buy a new mouse and you plug it in, it just works. Because Windows realizes, I already have a driver, it came with Windows, it's general purpose enough that it does everything that that mouse or keyboard could ever need. Sometimes that's not the case, particularly if you've got a funky gaming mouse with 17 extra buttons mm -hmm. and programmable screens and sirens and special things for adjusting your captain's chair and all of that good <laughs> stuff that obviously one needs mm -hmm. you know better than I, Doug. Yep. And so in that case, Windows will go, OK, I know the device, I configure the vendor, I know what features it needs. The vendors told Microsoft, that's the driver and the software that I need. I'll go and get it for you. And I'll get it using essentially the same process of backend as Windows Update. And I'll run the installer for you. So you don't even need to worry about, oh, do I need to log out? Do I need to come back in as admin or whatever? I'll run the installer for you and I'll get it all done. And as dodgy as that sounds, at least it means that you're getting known software that is relevant to the device you've just plugged in at least the servers run by Microsoft, not by some random person you've never heard of and will never meet and who deliberately has your worst interests at heart. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, it is plug it in, we'll find what you need, and we'll try and get the software for you. And so in this case, it seems that all worked superbly, except that <laughs> <laughs> right at the end of the Razer installer I'm imagining they put this in essentially as a feature. It kind of says, now I don't have a Razer device, so I haven't been able to try this. But from watching the video of the person who found the bug, it says, oh, and just so you know, here's the directory where I installed all the files, which I think is quite nice because I've installed software in the past on Windows, which has included a driver here and a this there and a that there. And afterwards, you have no idea what it's spewed all over your disk and you have no idea where to go and uninstall it. So this installer tells you, there's the directory, and maybe you want to see what files are in that installation directory. So you can right-click and you can open File Explorer, and you can see those files because it's basically an, a live active link in the program. And then once you're in File Explorer, you can go Shift, right-click, and one of the magic options that comes up in contemporary Windows is open a PowerShell window here, which basically means it opens a command prompt for PowerShell. Huh. Problem is that when you do that, what happened is that Windows started the installer, the installer started Explorer, the Explorer started the PowerShell window, and when Windows started all up, because it's a device installer, it started with the system account. Whoopsie Therefore, <laughs> your PowerShell window is an NT authority backslash system account. Hmm. As you say, if you're a gamer and you're going, well, I really like to fiddle with my video settings, but the only way I can get admin, the only time Windows will let me be admin is if I plug in a new device, it will control the admin access for me. It'll run the installer and then it'll get me out. Darn. Well, the point is here, you can escape from the walled garden temporarily <laughs> in the middle of the installer and go and mess with the video settings. Or if you're a penetration tester, or let's face it, a crook, you can kind of do anything you want. So it's not the most serious bug in the world, elevation of privilege, but it's the weird irony of it all that kind of makes it interesting. 
So if you're running a corporate network, this is not a great hole to have because in theory, it means that any of your users to whom you haven't given admin powers, if they have a Razor mouse, and in fact, if they've got a wireless mouse, you don't need the mouse. You only need the dongle, don't you? The bit that you put in the USB port. Yeah. Then you can plug in that mouse and 63 seconds later, you can be sitting at a superpower PowerShell prompt. And from there, the world is your oyster. So I put a little, this little wireless dongle in my pocket and I wander into a business and I sit down at an unattended computer, fire this up, do this trick, and then um, I, I am system and I can install a little key logger on there and, and walk out the door. Yes. Now, of course, if you have the kind of office network where somebody can just wander in with a wireless dongle in their pocket or not, and you have unlocked laptops lying around, you probably have a pretty big security problem anyway. Because, <laughs> That's true, yeah. <laughs> you know, you think of, it's the same way that people go, oh, well, malware can't do any harm if it's not admin. So as long as it doesn't get admin rights, as long as it doesn't do an elevation of privilege trick, I'm golden. Mm -hmm. Well, tell that to the ransomware crooks. They don't need to ransom every single file on the average person's laptop. Mm -hmm. They just need, given that most laptops, at least work ones, are used by one and only one person. They need to scramble the files in C colon backslash users backslash your name here. Mm -hmm. And you have, generally speaking, the right to those files because they're yours. They're tied to your account so other people can't mess with them. So it's when you let someone else be you that you have a problem. And, you know, if the, again, if the laptop's unlocked, then maybe you've left your browser open. Maybe you've left yourself locked into your work email. You know, so you already have a serious problem. Having said that, this does make a bad thing worse. So if you are in a corporate environment, you almost certainly want to take some steps to control this automatic driver installation process in Windows. Many company networks, many company sysadmins will have done this. But if you don't know how to do it, whether it's on work laptops, if you look after a small network, or on friends and family laptops, particularly kids' laptops, where you look after them for them. We show in the article how you can adjust the setting that tells Windows, don't install the drivers automatically. Wait till someone who is an admin comes along and authorizes it for whoever the user of the computer is. So that's a little protection you can do for friends or family or kids or on a work network. So that's probably an option you do want to set if you look after a computer for somebody else and you know that you don't want them being able to fiddle with it because when they've done that before, it has ended badly. Or if you're in a work environment where you feel there's a sort of duty of care for you to do that. And we've also put a link to a Microsoft document which explains how you can do uh, take control over device installation using group policy if you have an Active Directory environment. And uh, if you're a Sophos customer, I'd recommend that you look at Sophos Central Peripheral Control, which can help you control who's got what on your network, where, when, to. Yeah, it's really easy. Even I can do it. So that is uh, how a gaming mouse can get you Windows superpowers on nakedsecurity.sophos.com. And it is time, once again, for our Oh No, this will be more palatable for me this week, 
than the one that was oh okay i was i was going to say we had such fun last week and the listeners seem to enjoy it so much why don't we just do the same one again <laughs> and you can play chester i feel like um, we do the but... same one every week it's me just not getting a ps5 that, that's gotta that's gotta end sometime <laughs> i can't go a year the, the I, i'm gonna see what the year anniversary of the release is i think it's in a few months and i'm gonna i gotta have one by then but i digress on uh reddit chester said he's up for he's up for deals okay I'll talk to him get yourself some shiba inu coins okay and some clever smart contracts he might be he might be got you might be golden all right i'll talk i'll talk to him. he's probably he's probably he's probably yeah. sick of it already he's he's played it he's in, had his fun and he's no longer no notice that he invited you up so you could play a few games with him he that was say, nice yeah why don't you come and play a few games with me and then you know what you can take it home i don't really like it that much he didn't actually say that I felt a certain warmth towards it in his voice at the end of that section. So either he genuinely likes it or he's holding out for a good price. Okay. I'm going to both. book my plane ticket and uh, have my taste buds go haywire on the flight while I'm eating, and then I will show up in Vancouver. Okay. Well, on uh, Reddit, user Ulimi2002 writes, Too much training... I'm an IT director of a medium-sized business and have been pushing cybersecurity training for the users for several years now. Now, we could make the argument that you can never train them too much, but this person says, some of the users are so paranoid about opening emails that they forward the emails to me for confirmation first. I usually tell them to trust their judgment after I check to make sure it was safe. But today, someone... <laughs> exactly. Trust your judgment after I check your judgment. Yeah. Um, but today, someone forwarded me an email he thought was a customer sending him photos of something, but he wasn't sure. It took about 10 seconds for me to realize that he had received a text message at some point and had then forwarded that message to his own email address and forgotten about it. The email came from his own phone number at mms.att.net, but he didn't notice the number was his own. I'm glad he's being careful, but maybe I scared everyone a bit too much about phishing. Better safe than sorry, I guess. Exactly. To be fair, it sounds like that person is kind of going about this the right way, that they're not belittling people when they send through things that to you or to me might be totally obvious, which is a great way to get people not to cooperate with you. Because if they knew the answer, they wouldn't ask, would they? Mm-hmm. When it comes to social engineering, there's something about that human knows a human that means that people can get other people to do really strange and unlikely stuff. And I think we recommend, I think it's at least quarterly phishing training where you're showing off some of the newer techniques and things that can come through. But if you're going to do that, which you should, you also need to expect that, um, you know, for at least a month after that, you're going to get a bunch of emails forwarded to you saying, is this phishing? Is this phishing? Because people are going to be more vigilant, which is good. Absolutely. And you need to bear in mind that it's not a it's not a competition. It's training. It's not like you go, oh, I can't believe you missed that. So you have to avoid getting into the position where people feel that you're testing them in the hope that they'll fail because that means you win. You know, when it starts feeling competitive, then you've really lost the plot because the people that we're competing with are not each other. They're the crooks. And who among us hasn't opened an email and read half of it before realizing that we had written it? 
some sort of email chain with a bunch of people on it, and you scroll down, and you say, oh, what's, what's this guy talking about? Oh, that's me. This guy can be forgiven for forwarding a text message to himself and not realizing that he was uh, reading his own email. It's like taking the bus and knowing which is the right stop to get off at. It's really, really easy the second time you do it. <laughs> so true. After you've walked back a kilometer from the <laughs> exactly. stop when you overshot the yeah, first you time. Have, you have to do that. <laughs> that happens everywhere. Yeah. It's a rite of passage. Yeah. Oh yep. boy, I've done that a bunch. So if you have a no-no you'd like to submit, we'd love to read it on the podcast. You can email tips at sophos.com. You can comment on any one of our articles. You can hit us up on social at Naked Security. That's our show for today. Thanks very much for listening. For Paul Ducklin, I'm Doug Amath, reminding you until next time to stay secure. secure.